saying good morning to everyone and again expressing how eager I am to share some thoughts with you that I've been studying over the past week. Uh, this morning we're going to continue our study on the seven churches identified in the book of Revelation and specifically this morning we're going to draw our attention to the church at Smyrna. Now if you were here a couple of weeks ago you heard an introductory lesson by brother Mike and Mike gave us a lesson into Revelation chapter 1 and he did a good job at trying to provide us some context of understanding the purpose of the book of Revelation and to understand the purpose of these letters that were written to these seven separate autonomous congregations in Asia Minor. He did a good job at providing us context of understanding who the author was of these letters, of understanding some of the symbolism that's within the book of Revelation. And so again in Revelation chapter 1 beginning in verses 1 through 3, the scripture says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show his servants these things, which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it unto his angel and servant John, and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And so what do we know to this point? We know that John, the apostle, wrote the book of Revelation and he penned these letters down. That John, before he was an apostle, was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He actually walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. But here in this time, in the latter first part of the century, first century, all the other disciples had been martyred. And he was the only disciple that was left. And we see in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9 that he had been exiled. He had been exiled to the island of Patmos. Most likely he says there in verse 9 that he was in tribulation, that he himself was suffering from persecution. And most likely he was sent there by the Roman authorities. And if you look at the island of Patmos, it's, it's an island about uh, 40 miles off the coast of Ephesus. And it's where the Romans would send prisoners. They would send exiles there and they would go and they would bust up rock and they would use that material and that material would be shipped back to Rome so that Rome could build its infrastructure and its cities and all of its glory. But it was a barren wasteland of rock. And so here John is, an elderly man on this island just rotting there. And all of a sudden he has a supernatural experience. He has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And he's told that the things that he's about to witness, the things that he's about to see, these visions that he would see, that he is to write them down and to create a record for them because they would be sent to these seven churches in Asia Minor. That they would be a letter from Jesus Christ himself to these churches with letters containing admonitions, of containing warnings, of in, uh, containing instructions for how these churches were to operate and the conditions that they were in. Now, if you also recall in Revelation chapter 1 that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that one of the visions that he saw was this vision of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ was standing there, and that he had white hair, and that there was a sword coming out of his mouth, and that in his right hand were seven stars, and before him were seven golden candlesticks. And those seven golden candlesticks are defined for us in Revelation chapter 20. We know that the seven golden candlesticks represent those seven churches in Asia Minor. 
Ephesus, Thyatira, Pergamus, Sardis, Smyrna, Laodicea, that these were the congregations in Asia Minor that these letters would be written to. And we also have a definition or defined what these seven stars mean. The seven stars in Christ's right hand represent the seven angels that would deliver this message to these churches. Now when you look at that word angel, it's translated into messenger. And sometimes that word means a literal human being messenger. Sometimes it means an angelic messenger, uh, a, a supernatural or an angelic messenger. So blessed is the entity, the person or the angel that was going to make sure that these churches received the letters that Jesus wanted them to have. And so this morning we're going to look at the letter that was written to the church at Smyrna. Now the letter to the church at Smyrna was only four verses. It was a br very brief letter, but nonetheless it contained a very important information. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 8, we see the address to the church at Smyrna. It says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which is dead and is now alive. Now what you're looking at here is a picture of modern day Smyrna. However, it's no longer called Smyrna today. It's actually in Turkey, on the western side of Turkey. It's a, it's a community or a city called Izmir, Turkey. And it's a very vibrant city. You can tell from the photograph. It's a city of about 4.3 million people. It's a city that's flooded with tourism. It's a city known for international trade in tobacco and silk. It's a city that is steeped in the cultural arts of a lot of tourists and kind of a tropical climate. A very beautiful city. But that city had a dark past. That city was not the same city it was in the first century. In the first century, it looked like this. And in the first century, it was considered the crown jewel of all of Asia Minor. It was a city that was steeped in pagan religion. It was a city that was known for all of its medical schools and its research and sciences. It was a major port city. In fact, if you were to look at a map and you were to draw a straight line from Smyrna, you would end up all the way into Athens, Greece, which is the mouth of Europe. And so there was a lot of travel that would come through there. A very populated city. But it was a dark city. It was a dark city because of the idolatry, of the pagan worship there by the Roman Empire, and by the suffering of Christians who lived in this community. In fact, when you, when you consider the word or when you look at the word Smyrna, the city got its name from myrrh. Now, we're somewhat familiar with what myrrh is. Myrrh is a, a precious alloy. It's an ointment. It's a, a fragrance or perfume. And in John chapter 19 and verse 39, we read about the crucifixion of Jesus that Joseph went and took the body of Jesus off the cross and he gave it to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus covered the body of Jesus in myrrh. And the reason why he did that was because myrrh had a, a, a fragrance to it. It was a perfume. And it was a very common practice for the Jews to, to cover the deceased bodies with myrrh to try to deodorize or mask the smell of rotting corpse. They didn't have the burial practices that you and I have today. And so myrrh was something they would use. It was a very valuable commodity. You know, in Matthew, we read about Jesus being on the cross, that he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. And so some people believe that myrrh had a sedative effect as well. And so even though it was a valuable commodity, it was also a commodity that was associated with bitterness. It was also 
a commodity that was associated with suffering, with the, you know, the putting of dead bodies and for, uh, for crucifixion. And the way that you would get myrrh is very similar to the way that you would get maple syrup today. You would find a thorny bush from a tree and you would drill a hole into it and it would seep out the resin from uh, the bush and you would collect that resin and you would let it hard for about three months and after it was hardened for about three months you would mix it with oil and then you would crush those rocks and those rocks would create a chemical reaction which would create a smell or perfume or a fragrance. And it's really a representation of what we're about to see for the Christians there at Smyrna. That they themselves would be crushed under the weight of the Roman Empire. But even though that they would be crushed under the weight and the oppression of a government, it would be an aroma to God. It would be pleasing to God because these were people who were prepared to ultimately give their life up for the faith that they had in Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, we get into the heart of the letter. It says in verse 9, I know thy works and thy tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blaspheme of them that say they're Jews and are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. And so the Christians who lived in this community at this time were impoverished. We see that he writes and says, I know that you're poor. And you know why that they were poor? They weren't poor because they lived in some type of third world condition. They lived in the crown jewel of Asia Minor. They were poor because the society that they lived in discriminated against them and didn't want anything to do with them. They were a pagan culture. In fact, before Smyrna was even under the control of the Romans, it was a Grecian territory. And before the Romans came knocking on the door to conquest them and to take them over, the Grecians saw them coming and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get ahead of this thing and we're going to go and we're going to build temples to pagan gods to Rome and we're going to build temples to Emperor Domitian. We're going to have a, a temple for the emperor of Rome so that when the Roman army shows up on the doorstep, we'll just bow down to the government and lay down and say, white flag, we've already assimilated. Adopt us into your Roman culture. In fact, the Romans loved this territory. They loved this area because they didn't have to police it much. The community did it as well. The community did all that for them. They kind of left it alone. But the Christians there, because of this culture, suffered great persecution. In fact, one of the things that you had to do, if you were a Christian and you lived in Rome at this time, specifically this region, is that every year annually, you were required to go and burn incense to the emperor Domitian. And that you would go to this temple and you would go and you would bow down on a knee and you would get before a Roman judge or a Roman magistrate. And you would confess that emperor Domitian is God and that he is God alone. And then once you did that, that magistrate would sign off on a certificate. And he would give you that certificate. And that certificate was basically your driver's license. You put it in your wallet, and if you were ever stopped by Roman authorities, you could whop it out and say, look, I have confessed and I have admitted that the emperor is God and he is God alone. It was emperor worship. It was called the liabus. And you could see where that would cause a problem for the Christians. 
See, this is different than the approach of when Jesus was asked about, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus gave the response, well, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's and you give to God what's God's, right? You live the best you can and, and, and submit to the government the best that you can and try to live as peaceably as you can. But this is a totally different situation. This is in complete contradiction to your faith to go and to bow down to an idol to confess that someone besides God alone is God. And if you didn't do that, then obviously you were going to be extinct rather quickly. In fact, they would harass Christians. In fact, I read reports of some of these magistrates would feel so bad for these Christians. These Christians would come down and they would say, just please, just please say that Caesar is God. We, we know that you don't worship Caesar and you have your own God over here. And, uh, but just, just for purposes of getting this piece of paper signed, just say it and then we'll go on our, on our business. But those who were committed couldn't do that. And they lost their lives because of it. But there were a group of people who didn't have to bow down to the altar of the emperor of Rome. And that group of people were called the Jews. For whatever reason, the Jews had some type of privilege with the Roman government where they didn't have to go and acknowledge that Caesar was God. They let them be to their own. But the Jews harassed the Christians. In fact, a number of times they would, they would bring charges upon the Christians. They would haul them in before the Roman government and they would create problems for the Christians. And I believe that's why Christ says that they are a synagogue of Satan. Why? Because He says they blaspheme them which say they are of Jews. They were blasphemous. That word blasphemous means to slander. It means to rail against. It means injurious speech. They were speaking out against the Christians, having them arrested and having them confined to prison, having them tormented and having them killed. And Jesus said that they're a synagogue of Satan. You see, they were impoverished in that community because this was the environment that they lived in. Right? If you were a Christian and you were trying to sell a fish somewhere in a fish market, they didn't buy your fish. If you were a Christian in this community and you tried to sell merchandise to feed your family, they would not buy your merchandise. They wouldn't buy your groceries. You weren't allowed into the trade unions here. And that's why they were impoverished, relying upon each other. And notice that the Scripture says that they're physically poor, but God considered them rich, rich to Him. Now... Could you imagine living in the first century in these conditions where you didn't matter to anyone in your community or in your world, but all of a sudden you get a letter from the one who matters the most. Someone who writes a letter directly to you to encourage you. That Jesus Christ, when you look at these letters, Jesus is always saying things like, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the last. I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. Establishing the eternity of Jesus Christ, that they themselves could look at Jesus Christ as also being in a state that they were in, a state of rejection by society, a state of oppression, and a state of martyrdom that they themselves would be in. But He Himself conquered death, and He Himself appears before Him or sends them a message in a letter. Now let's further examine the, the last two verses of the letter that He sent them. In Revelation 2, verses 10 through 11, it says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. 
Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, say unto the, the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And so Jesus is pretty blunt with them. He says, you're going to have further persecution. You're going to be in prison. You're going to die if you, stay in this, if you stay faithful to me. And he didn't hide anything about that. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to reorient their fear on him rather than the fear of the circumstance that they were in to bring them into that proper perspective. And I notice it says that they will have tribulation 10 days. Now, what that to me means is that there was going to be a duration on this period that they were going to suffer. That God, even though um, was going to allow them to be tested, was going to allow them to be suffer, He wasn't going to let it go on continually, that there would be an end to it at some point. And in my mind, I kind of think back to Job, where God allowed Job to be uh, tested by Satan, and, but God's put a certain hedge of protection around Job. And so that seems to be the case with these people uh, as well. And so that's the letter. That's the letter to the church at Smyrna. And so what do we glean from that? The first thing that I think that we can take from uh, the church at Smyrna is this, is that Christ knows and recognizes our performance on an individual and congregational basis. And I know at first glance that might sound like that's stating the obvious. But it's true. When you look at each one of these letters to each one of these churches, they all start out the same. There's the first four words in each one of them is, I know thy works. That Jesus is saying to them, I know the condition and I know the state of your congregation. And I think that sometimes for many people who have, who have been Christian for maybe decades and decades, uh, who have put in a lot of effort and a lot of service into the church, maybe begin to wonder, does God even really notice the things that I'm doing? Is there any recognition for the service and the things that I'm doing? And the answer to that is unequivocally yes. We know that in the back of our mind. But we need to be reminded that God does know us individually and that He does know the state uh, of our congregation and that He does care. We not, might not be a congregation that's on every billboard on I-35 up here. We not, may not be the biggest congregation anywhere else in, the, in Denton or Denton County, Texas. And maybe we begin to wonder, does God really care about our small community of believers right here? And the answer is yes, that God knows us and He knows our congregation and He knows the state of our congregation. And He knows about the efforts that we put into the service of this congregation. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, in verses 10 through 12, it says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you've shown toward His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those through faith and patience and inherit the promises. Everything that you do to contribute to this congregation is acknowledged and it's recognized by God and it won't go unrewarded if we maintain and stay faithful. Whether that's 
cleaning up after the building, after everyone's left and we're here vacuuming alone, or whether it's going to a particular brother or sister who you feel like is having a hard time and having a conversation with them, or whether you take time out of your busy week to go sit down and have a study or counsel with somebody, that is not unrecognized by God. That's an important process of what maintains the health and the viability of congregations. And so, again, we need to understand that everything that we do, it will be rewarded. It is recognized by God, and God does care about this church and about other churches throughout the world. The second thing that I think that we can take from the persecuted church is this, is that it's necessary to prepare our minds to be ready and to accept and to endure persecution should the trouble arise. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, Peter writes this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. And notice he says, don't be surprised or don't be shocked or don't be taken back if that you're persecuted before your belief in Jesus Christ. And if you, if you read this chapter here, what you see is Peter is urging these Christians to be committed to their faith, to not be half-hearted, to not be half-in, but to be committed that when Jesus Christ saved them, that He created a purpose for them. And that purpose for their life is that they were to take on the attributes of Jesus Christ. And part of taking on the attribute of Jesus Christ is taking upon suffering as He Himself took upon suffering. I read an article not too long ago. Um, I, I've been, I'm sure some of you have heard some about all this, this struggle, all this uh, conversation going on in China with all these Christians who are being persecuted over there. And what I read was is that they project by 2030 that China will have more self-proclaimed Christians than America and China. Since 2010, there's been an explosion of the Christian faith over there. There's been a lot of work going on over there. But because of that, now the government's starting to take notice and they're starting to get concerned. And so you know what they're doing now in China? Pretty, this is what they're doing. Now, President Xi over there has ordered that there be cameras and surveillance systems put into these churches to monitor what's being taught and who's there. You know what else they're doing over there? They're also uh, going over there, and if you have a cross or if you have um, some type of Christian decor or some type of Bible verse that's written on a wall, they're ordering that it be removed and that it be replaced with a portrait of President Xi. But they haven't stopped there. Now, in October of 2020, what they've done is they've created a state-approved Bible. They have went through the Bible and they have created their own Bible and changed some of the, some of the historical content found in the Bible to meet the, uh, the Chinese government's uh, agenda. For example, in John chapter 8, we read about the story of the woman who was brought before Jesus uh, caught in adultery. And they said, She's, the law of Moses says that we need to stone her and kill her. And remember what Jesus told them? Jesus says, if any of you who don't have sin, you can go ahead and cast the first stone. And they all dropped the rocks and they all walked away. It was a perfect example for us about learning how to forgive. Right? You know what the new version says in the Chinese 
Bible that state approved, it says this, that when her accusers left, Jesus stoned the woman himself, saying, I too am a sinner. But if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, that law would be dead. Those are what the Christians in China right now are, are, are facing and dealing with. Now, do you think that the Christians over in China, do you think that they're fighting over or quarreling over the color of the carpet in the church? They're not. In fact, I would, I would submit to you that I believe that they probably have a far more mature faith than a lot of people here in America. And they have a far more deeper appreciation for their brothers and sisters in Christ because they're all they got over there. It's sad and it's tragic. But they themselves are not immune from being persecuted just as we're not. You see, persecution and suffering... It brings, into proper, it brings us into a proper perspective, right? It helps us to realize what's the most important. Well, what about us? What about us in America? You know, I think that when we think about persecution, and I know this is true for me, I don't want to think about a persecution in America. It's something that I put in the deep recess of my mind. You know, I can sit there and watch the news and I can hear about all the things that are happening in China and then the very next segment on the news will talk about some person who's uh, losing their business because they won't sell a cake. And I just can't stand it and I just turn it off. Why? Because I don't want to think about that happening in America. But you know what? We need to be prepared for it. You know, Jesus and His, and his disciples, when they wrote these scriptures, they weren't telling us to bury our heads in the sand about persecution. They were saying to expect it. And it was mentioned a couple weeks ago that it feels like the tide is changing in our country. And I don't want to admit that, but it kind of feels that way, doesn't it? You know, one thing that I've noticed over the past three congregations that I've been to that they all have in common, which I found was really, uh, really interesting, is they all have surveillance systems around the congregation. Now, some of you who are older, who maybe went to camp meetings when you were younger or went to gospel meetings, do you ever remember going to a church that had a surveillance system? Why, why are we having surveillance systems? Because we're afraid of lunatics walking in here with a gun, shooting everybody up. There were lunatics in the first century, but it seems more pronounced now than it has in the past 30 years. What are you going to do when you can't get a job because you refuse to refer to somebody in the 37th pronoun? The tide does seem to be changing, but we need to be committed to being faithful and to preparing our mind, if necessary, to endure any persecution. The third thing I think we can glean from the church at Smyrna is that it's worth it to suffer for Christ. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think we need to be real careful when we look at this verse here. I think sometimes it's real easy for us when we feel mistreated by people or we feel mistreated by other people to just shrug our shoulders and to feel like, 
that we're just being persecuted for God's sake. And that's not, that's not really what this is saying. This is saying, blessed are people who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. And it goes down here, on, uh, for all kinds of evil against you on my account. This is for people who are persecuted because of their faith in Christ, not persecuted because of their own decisions or because of just things that randomly happen to us in life. And so looking at the, the letter of Smyrna, Jesus says that they're going to imprison you and that they're going to they're, they're kill you. And the last thing that he tells them there in that letter is, He that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. One of the reasons why it's worth it to, to endure persecution is so that we can circumvent not having to experience the second death. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 17, it says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, excuse me, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than to do evil. It's simply better to lose your life than to lose your soul in the face of persecution. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 12, Paul was very clear about suffering as a Christian. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you lose your job or you lose your business because you're persecuted for the name of Christ, it is worth it. If you lose your life for your faith in Christ, it is worth it. If you're sued for every penny that you have because of your faith in Christ and you lose everything, it's worth it. So in conclusion, as we look at the church at Smyrna, I think we can take away three uh, primary things from the persecuted church. Number one is that Christ knows our performance on an individual and on a congregational level. Number two, I believe it's necessary that we mentally prepare and accept persecution should we ever have to uh, experience it. And three, um, suffering for Christ is worth it. And we also, I think that we do also need to keep in consideration and pray for, for those people in China and all over the world. It seems like the biggest problem we have here is whether our curb's too far out in the middle of the road. But over there, those people are being issued state-approved Bibles. And so as having perspective on the world that we live in and, and being fortunate that we live in the time and in the, uh, the location that we do. Of all the seven churches that were mentioned um, in the book of Revelation, only two of them did not receive any type of criticism, and uh, Smyrna was one of them. And one thing that you'll see throughout the book of Revelation is that the church will prevail. Even though these people were under extreme duress, even though they were under the threat of the sword and an imprisonment, the theme of Revelation and what the message is is that the church will prevail through all of that. And so I appreciate your attention this morning. I hope that the study has been in accordance with God's Word, and I hope it's been accurate and beneficial to you. At this time, we're going to offer a song. Uh, come if you have a matter to bring before the congregation.